This is the waves. 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 Welcome to the waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and what's going to happen to women as the climate keeps changing. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. Today, you've got me, Rebecca Onion, a staff writer for Slate. And me, I'm Grace Lynch, senior producer at Wonder Media Network and host of the podcast As She Rises, which is a new show that tries to personalize the climate crisis through poetry, soundscapes, and the stories of local activists. The problem of climate change is is so big. So this is why I think I like your podcast so much. It can be hap- hard to wrap your arms around And we've all heard a bunch of times about this idea that the changes that are coming and that have already come are going to affect poorer parts of the world in more intense ways. But there's also an argument that I find really interesting to think about, that climate change is a woman's issue. Why am I interested in this? Well, I'm a woman and I have a climate (laughs) and I care a lot about it. Um, I'm I'm kidding. Of course, everybody has a climate. But I am really interested in the question of vulnerability and climate and have been for years. But I feel like since COVID, I've become more and more interested in it. So I remember when the lockdowns first started in March 2020 and everybody said, You know, there were a lot of think pieces about how disparate the impact was going to be. And throughout the whole pandemic, we've sort of come up with different ways to articulate that disparateness and talk about it in different ways. And from the observation that soon became really commonplace that, you know, kids who didn't have access to school lunch who were poor were going to suffer food insecurity from, you know, the realization again and again that essential workers are more exposed, all of these things. That was something we've been thinking about a lot. And more and more I'm starting to see, starting to feel like a lot of what's happened in COVID has fallen a lot on women and children. And so now bringing together what I've observed going on with COVID and what I've always worried about going on with climate, I've started to think a lot about women, children, and climate. And how did you you become interested in it, Grace? Well, I had always been a political junkie I mean, for years, I had been diligently following electoral politics. I started my like audio journalism career at 538. And then later on with Wonder Media Network, uh, covered the 2020 election with this show called Winning Wisconsin and really dove into it that way. And that has always been something really accessible to me. I was always interested by it. And yet I found that climate change I had the opposite reaction. I didn't want to talk about it. I got anxious. I was unfocused. I was I just shut down. The thing though, as you mentioned that like you're a woman with a climate. I too am a woman living in climate and I grew up surrounded by nature in the Pacific Northwest, out on tidal flats sailing, kayaking. My world was very water-based. It was very nature-based and I've seen it change so much since just when I was a kid. And similarly to yourself in terms of viewing how the world responded to a crisis like COVID, I just saw an an immense lack of empathy everywhere. (laughs) And that, I think, is something that's also really been missing from our climate conversation. And part of how when I thought about entering it and trying to figure out how I would make a show about something I personally hate talking about, how I could infuse it 
with as much empathy as possible, ground the story in a way that would make it more accessible to maybe even people like myself, and that would deviate from the political discourse that I normally am far more comfortable with, the roundtable chat shows, etc., the slate political gab fests of the world, which I listen to diligently. So that was how I, trying to unravel that puzzle for myself is kind of how As She Rises came to be, and it was all really heightened by COVID as well, and just figuring out how those voices could be different and how it could all sound different, and how we could feature the voices we're not typically hearing in this conversation, which, shocker to none, tend to be women. Coming up, we're going to talk through all the different ways that you could argue that climate is a woman's issue. Like when people say that, what do they mean? And we'll also talk about how climate change's impacts on children play into that sort of argument. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks so much for listening. I want to take a second and welcome all our new listeners and our old ones too. We haven't forgotten about you. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes too, like last week's, which was about whether or not it's possible to have a feminist wedding. Welcome back. So let's talk about this argument, Grace, that climate can be considered to be a woman's issue. So I have so many ideas about this, and it's so hard because you don't want to be essentialist. (laughs) But there are a bunch of arguments about physical differences and social vulnerability. So this is something that, again, I feel like I'm getting better at thinking about this since the lesson of COVID. Whether the society is getting better at dealing with this, (laughs) I'm not sure, but I feel like my thinking has gotten better about it. So I think of the climate as a woman's issue argument as maybe I sort of sort it into three different buckets. So there's economic vulnerability. Women are poorer uh, worldwide, we know. There's disparate health problems. So when researchers look at what happens to people after disasters and in like moments of crisis, like moments of drought or food insecurity, they sort of can sort out like which, which gender gets affected in different ways. And they say that women are affected differently by heat and air pollution, just like physically, especially when they're pregnant. So pregnant people who are, you know, stressed by heat and air pollution and like the experience of being evacuated from a disaster area creates issues for women and and their babies. And then there's a physical vulnerability issue. So if you're, this is when, you know, if you're evacuated from a natural disaster area, women have a higher risk of sexual assault, higher rates of anxiety and depression. So all of the, all these issues. So which of these issues show up in your reporting around women and climate? And how have you been been thinking about it? Yeah, this was actually when I, you know, first published the show, this was one of the first questions I got where someone was kind of like, loved the first episode. Thank you so much for for highlighting these voices. But like, why are we really hearing from women? And to me, it was such a kind of an innate feeling to me, because um, one of my 
One of my guests, Colette Pichon Battle, who kind of opened the series in our very first episode, she said, in order to combat the climate crisis, we're going to have to listen to those our capitalist society values the least. And that, as we are all well aware, is women of color and indigenous women even more specifically. And so that to me is like if our human civilization has gotten so out of whack with the natural world that, of course, the people who hold the answers are the people we're not listening to. Otherwise, we would not be this out of whack. And so that to me felt like a, a more natural way to enter the conversation. And I kind of backed into this fact that women are often the, the people on the front lines of climate change, both in experience it and then in the activism that follows. And this isn't, you know, just my hypothesis playing out, as you mentioned, like these are these are just objective truths. And I, I understand not wanting to be essentialist. And at the same time, when we think about global realities, women are more likely to be displaced by climate change. I think the UN estimates that's like 80% of people who have been displaced by climate change are women. And that is because globally, women do tend to be poorer. They tend to be the people who are more immediately concerned about providing for children with either like food or fuel. Like they are less likely to migrate for work. There's a host of scenarios that leave women kind of just like more exposed. And, and you highlighted a bunch of those. I think that the other thing that I wanted to highlight in in my reporting and that I think is really important is that not only are women the most affected, and I'm finding that women are by far the people who are really leading the charge in terms of trying to make things better, but that women let make up a significant minority of decision makers. Women make up only 30% of national and global climate change decision-making bodies. When they're 80% of the people being displaced is a huge discrepancy. Like, we talk about having a seat at the table. Women do not have a seat at the table right now. And to me, that is something that like is an immediate need of being rectified. You mentioned the idea that uh, when there's a, an area where people leave to look for work, women stay. How does that make them more vulnerable? Such as because you're staying in a place that might not have resources anymore. Exactly. And, or you're staying in a place that like is experiencing severe weather. So when something more damaging happens in that area or more devastating, women are just in the crosshairs of that of those severe events. In terms of migration, if women are the people who are staying behind in places that, to your point, are maybe more vulnerable to these severe weather events, then they're in the crosshairs of those events when they do occur. And to your point that, like, in the event of those types of disasters, that women are more physically vulnerable to either sexual assault or depression or abuse of some kind, there's also the, like, more immediate and practical effect that, like, women may just be more physically vulnerable even in the moment. There was a tsunami that hit Sri Lanka, I believe, in 2004. And it was found after the fact that men outsurvived women three to one in that catastrophe. And so it's not just that women are less mobile. I think that that like, mobility actively puts them at a greater risk when severe weather events like tsunamis do occur. Yeah, and that that kind of brings us back to the the caregiving question in a way because I mean, if you think about, I, I would never want to say that my dear child drags me down. It's not really what I mean when I talk about that, but there's a obligation that comes with caregiving 
that when things get tough in a society, it seems like the caregivers get submerged a little bit. I mean, this is another thing that we've seen in COVID, which it's like, uh, you know, I don't know if you can 100% say this, but it doesn't seem like the unequal effect on women in the United States from COVID has extended necessarily to physical harm. But when it comes to harm to their like economic power, I do think we can say at this point that the disaster of COVID has created a drag on women. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even to the question of physical harm, like we have seen a rise in domestic abuse um, since COVID. So I do think that like, it is within the realm of reason to say that in the face of catastrophe, that women are generally on getting the shorter end of the stick. And it's no surprise then that climate change happens on a similar global scale when women are the people who are more often than not. And of course, these are large generalizations, but it it is the majority of the case that women are caregivers, that women are providers, and that women are not going to be the ones to leave the family first. Right. I mean, yeah, just even in terms of like the the logistics of it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, it's like from it's very practical. And that's and that's part of what makes this such a complicated issue is because we can't possibly posit that women should just like completely change their roles on the planet in order to like be more equipped to adapt to climate change. Like that's probably not going to be the way that we completely upend society. But we do have to recognize that, you know, there's this idea that the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And I think that where I found frustration and a need to change the conversation was that the people who are closest to the problem are not the people we hear from. We hear from a lot of people who tend to look Bill Nye-esque and, and, uh, yeah. and, and are, you know, coming at this from like a really removed scientific perspective. And while, of course, that's all valid and important, there's an abundance of that. And right now, I feel like there's an incredible lack of voices that are more representative of the people who are going to actually have to adapt their lives in the absolute immediate to hopefully save their homes and their communities. I feel like it is so analogous to what's happening with COVID, in, again, in terms of the way that sort of the domestic impact of just a giant, complicated political issue. Like, if there's anything that's more complicated than COVID, it's climate change. Like, <laughs> it seems like it seems like COVID has already like overwhelmed our decision making capabilities, created so much strife, broken down so many like parts of our culture, um, and uh, honestly, it doesn't give me very much hope that anyone's voice gives very like can change very much at all. But maybe I'm um, being too negative about that. The scale of it is such a such a problem because it's so long. But you are also talking about you know the people that you are interviewing and and um, showcasing on your podcast are already experiencing it in an everyday sense. And I will say the something that surprised me was that every single one of the people I talked to found a way to have hope and combating the grand, large magnitude of the problem was foundational to how we designed the show. And so I, I just want to say that there is hope to be found. And I was surprised that that was indeed the case. We're going to take a break here, but I have a special announcement for you today. So this year, unbelievably, marks the 25th anniversary of Slate.com. 
For a limited time only, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. So as a member, there's benefits like no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, no hitting the paywall, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us. And other shows like Slow Burn, Political Gab Fest, Amicus, and so on. For the past quarter century, Slate has been covering all the major news events from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. And as a half a decade long employee employee at Slate, I can say that being part of covering things like the 2020 election and COVID has just been, I'm so impressed by everything my colleagues do. And I just, I love watching them do it and doing it, being part of it myself. Our culture shows have debated whether things are sexist, needing the best summer songs, explain the latest TikTok trends, which is very useful to me personally. So if we become part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. You can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash thewavesplus to keep us going for another 25 years. And again, don't forget, we're giving you $25 off the annual membership through Halloween, October 31st. So sign up now at slate.com slash thewavesplus. And if you want to hear more from Rebecca and myself on another topic... Check out the Waves Plus segment is this feminist where today we're going to be talking about Bond girls and whether or not Bond girls are feminist. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Let's get back to talking about climate media, your podcast, and the idea of hope. <laughs> okay, so I know that you said that you were sort of reluctant to put together a podcast on climate or to to read climate content, to participate in the debate. What good do you think it does for the climate debate to make it specific in this way, to, to create something that has um, sort of m- mostly women and non-binary voices in it, to make it specific to, to that segment of humanity, to sort of meld poetry and activism in the way that you have. I have lots of thoughts on it because in some ways it helps sharpen the argument. And in other ways, I sometimes worry that the often repeated point that this big problem is going to affect the vulnerable more than other people. I used to think that that was a great point to say a lot. And now I sort of wonder if maybe that makes people who are powerful write off the whole problem (laughs) Um, because they don't see themselves in it. Exactly. No, that is such a valid concern and something that I grappled with a lot in making this show because I'm coming at this from a huge point of privilege. You know, I am not in any way trying to pretend that I have experienced climate change on the same level as many of the people I'm speaking to. And so figuring out the role I had to play in that was really complicated and something that we spent a lot of time working on. And I feel as if Where the show has landed is 
the the best version for what the show could have been. But it's really hard to figure out how to do that. And I think where I ultimately came down was that empathy is is the most important thing that we can try to infuse the climate conversation with. And to your point earlier about making maybe taking politics out of it, in some ways that was important for me too, because to to present these people as victims or as suffering is inaccurate. These are people who are merely who are actually very proactive, very able, very capable. They just happen to be facing a very specific set of problems. And the specific set of problems are often outside of their control or often connected to larger global trends, but in their immediate communities do not feel as if they are acting on behalf of global interests. They're just trying to save the boundary waters. They're just trying to, you know, lead a reforestation effort in Puerto Rico. These are so focused, so specific, and so genuine. And these people are incredibly powerful. And so to give space for those stories and to make them that specific so that we realize that this isn't just something that's affecting the most vulnerable. These are affecting just unique communities that have a unique set of challenges facing them. I think ideally that kind of narrowing in and that focus allows for empathy because we're not thinking of these people as being different than ourselves, but we are able to access and understand their perspective on their homes and how tiny that is, I found to be really relatable and and actually empowering to me as a listener because I can help that effort. You know, there are people doing this work. It's not like I alone sitting in my Brooklyn apartment need to figure out how to stop global warming. That's a recipe for a panic attack. But but I, sitting alone in my Brooklyn apartment, can learn about the Gulf South for a Green New Deal action series and figure out how either A, I can donate or B, get involved or C, call a friend down there and ask them to. You know, it just made it so that there was something to do and to give people that ability to support these people who are leading these movements felt so worthwhile and so not fearful. Have you ever read the Octavia Butler Parables series? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. So I recommend it highly. Maybe this is one of my recommendations, but um, it's a a science fiction series about a woman who basically, it sort of happens during climate change a little bit. There is climate, a climate element to it, but it's sort of an apocalyptic scenario. And there's a woman who ends up leading a community of people and she becomes sort of a prophet, like a minister, basically. But her whole thing is there is going to be big changes that go on in life. And the only way to get through them is to have an objective and to try really hard on that objective. I mean, it should be a good one. Well, she calls it a positive obsession. You know, I was thinking about those books a lot when I was listening to your podcast, just because, you know, the Octavia Butler, Butler books are also very female centric, but it's also this idea of like having a small project that hopefully is helpful to the bigger problem, but that more than anything can keep you from going crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really think that that is a wise way to approach the climate crisis. And and I, I say that while also 
not wanting to pile on to this, like if you independently <laughs> fly two times less a year, like there there are like large systems that need to be held accountable and that need to change. But in terms of feeling as if you cannot make a difference or that there is no action that can be taken, like that is luckily not true. And there are ways and people who are doing incredible work that you can support that can make a genuine difference in small communities. How did children and mothering, parenting, come up in your reporting? Like, uh, There's a couple of mentions uh, from women who feel a certain way about bringing kids up in their change environment. Yeah. Uh, one of our poets for our Alaska episode, Joan Navayuk-Kane, she's in Upiak, and she is having to grapple with the fact that the Alaska she grew up in is not one she's going to be able to really show her children. And how then does she pass on her culture if she can't do it through experience or through, you know, visual unshared memories? And so her way of doing it is to turn to language and to make sure that her native language is preserved and that also that she shares that with them and encapsulates those memories in her native language. And I think that that's also why poetry was such an important part of the series was because in terms of audio mediums we have to communicate grand ideas in a economy of words that helps us kind of expand beyond what's literally being said. Poetry is pretty undeniably the vehicle for that. And that's kind of the whole thesis of the show is that by going incredibly intimate and small, we can understand this grander event that's taking place all around us. And poetry is kind of, you know, the, the metaphorical vehicle of that as well. And, and I know that you have been very interested and focused in how we talk about climate change with children, which, you know, I didn't even remotely try to tackle in this show. I'm just trying to be able to myself talk about it. But you're a mother. Yeah, that's right. I got a four-year-old. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you started having conversations about the climate? And do you worry about this sort of, you know, climate depression that we hear students talk about, I would say, more explicitly, but also that, you know, I as an adult most certainly have experienced, and I think many people do. How are you thinking about that? Um, I mean, I think about it all the time, unfortunately, possibly. I have not brought it up in like a, a descriptive way with her. You know, we do talk about sometimes we'll talk about, oh, you know, it's the middle of October and it's still 80 degrees. Like my husband and I will be commenting on that to each other. And we'll, you know, we'll end up talking about how that, that wasn't the way that it used to be. And like sort of naturally we'll end up, you know, talking about the way that the climate here in southeastern Ohio is changing a little bit. Um, you know, she is lucky in that she has not, gosh, knock on wood, where am I? Um, we have not had a natural disaster. We don't live in a place where there is smoke, really. Again, knock on wood, because I know there's smoke a lot of places that there didn't used to be. And so... I know that the people who, I can't remember if the um, women in Alaska address this specifically, but I know that one way that people with younger kids, like kids who aren't yet in elementary school, like mine, have had to talk about climate has come about because they can't go outside because of the smoke. So like my friends in California with the same age kids have talked about some of this stuff already, and I have not had to. It's 
controversial to say, but I sort of follow the school of thought <laughs> that I, f- I know about it because of reading the work of David Sobel, who's an environmental educator. His idea is that kids that learn first about the threats to nature um, rather than falling in love with nature don't have a chance to develop like a, an ecological bond, that it's better to allow them to develop an ecological bond um, and that that creates environmentalists, basically. Like, that's his argument. That that makes a lot of sense to me, personally. Just from the perspective of, like, empathy is what actually leads to, like, compassionate decision-making. Right. That's it. I mean, that's the idea is supposed to be that your kids, if they have a lot of outdoor experiences that are, um, like, tied to the best moments of their lives, you know? Like, I... You, try to do this by, you know, like I take my kid into the woods and we hang out on a big rock and like read books and uh, and sing and stuff. Um, I'm trying to sort of like teach her that the woods are fun. Although sometimes she goes, I don't want to go in the woods, <laughs> whatever. Um, but um, part of what kind of worries me a lot, again, from my seat of privilege is that more and more kids who grow up in places where there is like ecological anxiety, uncertainty, evacuations from natural disasters, fear, instability, it's like a harder prescription <laughs> to fulfill in a way, especially if the adults in their lives are really anxious and uncertain about what's going to happen. I'm not even talking about like what's going to happen with quote unquote climate change with the two big C's, but like what's going to happen with our river (laughs) Um, or like, you know, with our, you know, like the women in Alaska that you interviewed, you know, what's going to happen with our um, permafrost, that parental anxiety around it. I don't know. I just think it's going to get a little bit harder and harder to sort of create the sort of like the magic experiences or I don't know. It'll just be a different set of skills, I guess, for parents and educators to 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 have. You know, and and speaking as a non-parent who has not had to think through how I would explain this to a to a younger child, I do think though that making sure that nature is not something to be feared, and that's something that Kimberly Blazer, who is our poet in our episode about the Boundary Waters, that just launched on Indigenous Peoples Day, who is an Indigenous woman herself, she really reflected on how poetry in particular helps us understand how small we are in relation to the earth, and that that is a wonderful thing, and something we should celebrate and marvel at. And I think that part of the reorientation we can help a younger generation have, and I think that that they already have just growing up with this reality, is that our smallness is not something to be feared, but that the great respect we can then have for our ecological existence and for the the planet that which we live in, that's the point from which meaningful change that actually leads towards a more sustainable future is actually going to come from. Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. All right, Grace, you go first. What are you loving right now? Okay, two very quick things. One more women-focused, one more climate-focused to 
to make sure I, ca- I hit everything today. The first is another show that I have a great pleasure of working on is called Womanica. That's another Wonder Media Network show. And it's like five to 10 minute stories every single day of a woman throughout history that you may not know about, but definitely should. They're really fun. They are in general really great for kids. Although I will say this month in particular is... Um, we call them, calling them troublemakers, but it leans villainous, which is really great for those of you who love true crime because these are very empowering stories of female serial killers. Um, oh, but boy. The, okay. each month is a different theme, and it's just a very fun way to explore the like breadth of women throughout history. So I do recommend checking it out. And then another show that was a huge influence on creating As She Rises and I think really is exceptional is Fall of Civilizations where a historian kind of leads you through stories of the fall of civilizations throughout history. And spoiler, a lot of those collapses had to do with climate change, but these stories are told with such beauty and care and thoughtful, evocative descriptions and sound design. It's just really exceptional, kind of unlike any other podcast out there. I really recommend specifically the episodes about the Greenland Vikings and Easter Island. Okay, well, I'm going to recommend one book and one TV show. So the book is The Trouble with White Women by Kyla Schuler. And so this is a history book that's, I believe, out this month. And it's all about different ways that white women in American history have um, profited from slash benefited from slash um, in other ways gained an advantage from the oppression of non-white people. And it's one of those books that's like she synthesizes a bunch of uh, other history in a really creative and interesting way. There's stories about, you know, books I've read before about, um, you know, how women were actually slaveholders and you don't actually hear about that that much. And, you know, it's sort of the stories about this and she kind of um, brings everything together in sort of like a an, an argument. So that's really good. And then the TV show that I watched a couple weeks ago to write something about it for Slate and I can't stop thinking about it, which is called Midnight Mass. So this show is a horror show by Mike Flanagan. And so be careful because it's bloody. <laughs> um, so if you don't like that, then... I, maybe give it a pass, but it's um, it's kind of a horror show about religion in a way. There's a big religious versus atheist versus agnostic uh, sort of subplot, sub-theme to it. Um, and it's just really beautifully done. And as I read about for Slate, there's a um, one of the main characters is uh, played by Zach Guilford, who played Matt Saracen on Friday Night Lights. And I loved seeing him again, and he was so good in it. So um, I have not watched it again. I'm trying to stop myself because I have other things to watch, but I think about it all the time. So I think that's a pretty good recommendation. Midnight Mass. Watch it. <laughs> so that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content from shows like this one. And it's only a dollar for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. I myself am a Slate Plus member. Just just throwing that out there. (laughs) And Slate would love to hear from you. So you can email them at thewaves at slate.com. 
The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>